name is Yusuf. Uh, and I'm Tavit. And yeah, we've been your hosts uh, as the podcast format for this the last two, two and a half years. And we decided because this is our 20th episode, uh, we would actually switch it up and try video for the first time. Well, not for the first time. Yes, we, we have uh, experimented with formats before. We did a beginner's hour, but this will, you know, be another experiment. We like to experiment. We, we, like, like, to experiment. we like to try new things. Yeah, we like to try new things, exactly. So, so we're, we yeah, we're still re releasing the audio podcast, but we'll also do a video one and put it up on YouTube and, you know, see, see how that goes. Yeah, hopefully you guys will enjoy yeah. this format and see my weird Muppet face making weird Muppet <laughs> faces. Flapping them gums. Flapping them gums. Um, and I thought, you know, it would be really interesting because this is also, you know, on our 20th episode, it might be a really good time for us to sort of, like, look back. Uh, and retrace our steps because we've been doing this now for over two years uh, and it's been kind of a labor of love for us so I thought it'd be interesting to sort of kind of reintroduce ourselves now that we're in a new format um, so allow maybe, me to reintroduce myself allow me to reintroduce <laughs> myself and since the Bronx will always lead why don't you take it away of course so yeah, it's kind of fun because we listened to some of our earlier episodes, so I went back and you know listened to the first one where we did introduce ourselves, and I'm still working in motion design. Um, I work in television and motion graphics and animation, and that's where I get my paper, <laughs> but I also like, I have been, since then, doing a lot more writing in games, and I'm work, you know, I've gotten uh, pieces published in Waypoint, which is a vertical advice, and Pace Magazine, in Unwinnable, which is a monthly uh, magazine, and just, you know, getting my stuff out there and blogging a little bit. Just like, really, you know, I, I did a lot of writing in college and uh, had to put it aside to, you know, focus more on video and motion graphics. So being able to stretch those muscles again and get those working, and I think the podcast has been very instrumental in that in terms of being able to talk and find a critical voice, basically, where, because the first episode, you know, it's still rough, we're figuring out <laughs> what to talk about, whether to be like, 8 out of 10, yeah, good game, true. you know, mechanics, 8, <laughs> soundtrack, 5, stories, story, Weird. 7, uh, could have been longer, I want my money out of this purchase, yeah, it was. Uh, you know, consumer report style, you know, yeah. it's like, or, you know, super dry, academic, you know, like, ludonarrative dissonance talk. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of options to choose from, and I think we spent we've so far spent 20 episodes figuring out those options. So yeah. that's me. Totally. And me, I was uh, coming actually from the video games industry. I worked for many years uh, in two tours of duty um, at Atari, uh, which is a global video games publisher, uh, which has made some great and some not so great games, uh, but a really great group of people that work there, um, and left there shortly after we started making our podcast. Um, and that was actually my second tour of duty. Between my tours of duty at Atari, I was actually also partner uh, at Kill Screen Magazine, uh, which is a video game arts and culture company. Um, which has a print publication, um, but also a daily website. Um, and when I joined their business, I actually joined to sort of make games for them. Uh, I started uh, the very short-lived Killscreen Manufacturing, Killscreen MFG. Um, and we did a whole bunch of really fun small games uh, and events, uh, some cultural, some just a great party, some like promotional. Um, we did like a Fright Night, no, what was it called? I can't remember. It was like Fright Night or something like a play on Fright Night for Capcom, which was like a showcase of all of their horror games. Uh, we did uh, the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York's first ever uh, video games themed exhibit and opening party. Uh, 
and just a whole bunch of other stuff. We like launched an Incubus album with a really <laughs> actually way deeper than it should have been side scroll beat 'em up game. Um, but since then, I've actually kind of steadily moved away from the profession of video games. I'm now a associate creative strategy director, which is a whopping title, uh, which means very little, um, at a company called Code and Theory, which is like a creative agency. We like make things and business strategies for companies. Mm-hmm. I basically take luxury internet companies and make them better, like more, <laughs> slightly better. Yes. Um, so it's weird stuff. It's not games at all. So in a weird way, you've kind of been moving subtly towards games through your critical like writing mm-hmm. and through this podcast. And I've kind of just been moving back to playing games and just kind of enjoying them as a general consumer. So it's been a really interesting kind of crisscross. Yeah, ships crossing in the podcast seas. Started with like me being, as you called it, inside baseball. Like I remember some of the earlier episodes, I'd always have something to say about like the process. Yeah, I knew people who made the games. Yeah, I knew people who made the games. And always had some perspective that came from like the often painful process of actually making games and publishing games Mm -hmm. uh, to just really talking about them as a cultural consumer, you know, someone who enjoys and holds games up on the same level as I do films or literature or music. Mm. Um, And really, I I thought it was also interesting because um, as I went back and listened to some of the themes that we explored, I realized, like, again, how much, like, uh, kind of how we play things or how we interact with things, like, says a lot about us. Like, I realized that, like, the more that I would listen to the episodes, the more I realized that, of course, we're talking about the games, and of course, we're talking about ludonarrative dissonance and all sorts of other cultural touch points that the games remind us of. But in a lot of ways, we were like talking about ourselves, and I found that really interesting. So it was, mm. it was pretty cool. Um, my old business partner, Jamin at Killscreen, had this analogy that he would always use when we were talking about the power of play, uh, where he talked about his um, a friend of his who was going to get married into a Chinese family. And they couldn't speak the same language, basically. Uh, he and his, his now wife could speak the same language, but he and his soon-to-be father-in-law could not speak the same language. So one way that they got to know each other was they sat down and they played mahjong together. Um, and so through that interaction of playing a PvP board game, a strategy <laughs> game, they learned, essentially, uh, w- whether they would you know, quick, be quick to take risks, were they conservative, uh, did they? How did they? You know, move their pieces around the board. This can say a lot about you. Yeah. Um, so I thought it might be interesting to like kind of take a tour back through some of our yeah. uh, favorite episodes and not so favorite episodes as well. And the just game, you know how the games we talked about what they say about us. Yeah. And what um, they say about the world too, because the world has changed significantly oh in the past two two years. Hasn't it? <laughs> Hasn't it just? Hasn't it just? <laughs> so I guess wait, should we like. Take it all the way back? I think we should. Episode 01. 01. <laughs> Which was? You know, uh, Wolfenstein. Wolfenstein. We were just mentioning that because you, you know the Seabreeze guys or you work with them. Yeah. Um, oh, Starbreeze. Starbreeze. Seabreeze is a much gentler feeling, you know. <laughs> Starbreeze is a lot more, uh, I guess, far-reaching. Yeah, Starbreeze were still say. the guys who did like the Riddick first-person games, which yeah. were fucking ridiculously awesome part of the pun. Mm. Um, yeah. It was a pun. Ridic, ridiculously oh. awesome. <laughs> I'm sorry that I'm I still asked. making puns. I'm sorry I asked. No, no, apologies, <laughs> apologies. Um, yeah, so yeah, Wolfenstein. It's uh, irrelevant because, of course, it not only is it getting a sequel, yes, but it's also a game about killing Nazis. Oh yeah, and punching Nazis. That one's <laughs> unfortunately come back around. Yeah, yeah. yeah I wish this only the sequel part came back. Yeah, but really. The yeah. Nazi part is also is also here. Yeah, and it's a game when we talked about it. Um, we talked about its its ability or its inability to live up to its moral framework, uh, whether 
it felt like it was doing enough in, to kind of justify that World War II setting, that you know Nazi setting, a game that basically doesn't have Hitler, it has a, a anal or analogy for him, and yeah. uh, doesn't really have concentration camps as much as it has like work camps or um, something a lot more, I guess, sterile and um, and uh, approachable, palatable to a mainstream audience. So the sequel is going to be set in America. Um, yeah and same alternate history where the Nazis are running things. And I guess the, you know, the question that is going to be important is, again, is that moral framework going to live up to its premise? Are they going to play you know, softball with Nazis again, essentially? <laughs> yeah, and also I mean, something that had been brought up as well is the, the ta you know, a lot of the marketing and the tagline for the game was we need to make America great again or yeah. free again, and you know that kind of belies the reality of where of the fact that the the German Nazis used American like segregation and Jim Crow yeah. um, legal strategy to base their their you know their their worldview off or, or help build help. their yeah, worldview. Totally. Um, so it kind of the game in its premise in its inherent premise presupposes that like. America was good until the Nazis got here, you know, right. like, yeah, and the, the reverse, the, the danger of making an alternate history, as we are also seeing with the Confederate show, is that by um, creating a hyperbolically um, super racist or, you know, fascistic in a certain direction um, piece of media, you are then, you are making assumptions about the real world, about, like, how life works um, yeah. outside of that media, and that's, there's always a danger of that. You know, are you critiquing our actual world, or are you justifying yeah. um, what we're going through? Exactly. Yeah. Normalizing the concept. Yeah, normalizing, yeah. yeah. It's a really interesting... The status quo, basically. It's yeah. a terrible line to, to have to say that, you know, is being walked poorly, but I think it is being walked poorly all the time. Like, there's this idea that, like, um, that we're post-racist, I mean, post post-Nazi, post-all these things that mm. I think has created a kind of, to use the very word that are often tossed back, uh, in the liberal space, like it's created safe spaces for these terrible ideas to continue mm. to fester. Um, I think as a society, you know, America has, and this is something that's new to me, I, I don't even feel 100%, like this is one of the changes that I've gone through since the two years ago where we started this, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of podcast. Like if I look back on myself when we were recording the Wolfenstein episode, I think I was still very much in like a neoliberal way of thinking. You know, we both went to school together. Uh, we went uh, we went to a school system that started with the, in my case, the Ethical Culture School, and in your case, Fieldston Lower? Um, no, no I, I had been in like the public school. You've been in the public school system. Yeah. So basically, we both went to Fieldston as, uh, in high school, and one of the schools that feeds into it, it used to be called the Working Man School, and it's the Ethical Culture School, now it's known as, which of course is like the most incredible liberal, like, you know, institution of and I mean like neoliberal like this idea yeah. that like capital L liberal capital L liberal <laughs> exactly like freedom for all uh, no idea should be uh, suppressed um, it's really like constitution thumping way of looking at the at civil society it's really just the concept of Westphalian civil society um, and what's interesting is that I've gone through kind of a change because I think especially really recently um, with this resurgence of like an out sort of Nazi and neo-national party here in America um, and with the ongoing police brutality, the racism of the criminal justice system, I don't can't even call it a justice system, but like the ongoing racism in America, um, I've been 
kind of beaten into exhaustion, try, uh, exhaustion trying to like justify my old worldview. Mm. And I don't know exactly where I'm going to land yet. Sure. But it was around the time where Richard Spencer, the alt-right guy, got punched in the face mm. right around the Trump inauguration, where I realized that I think it's cool to punch a Nazi in the face. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of, that was really flying in the face of my old way of thinking of sure. like, no, all perspectives should be welcome to the table. Certainly some are morally reprehensible, but we need a civil way of, you know, blah, blah, blah dialogue. I just don't know if I fit so cleanly into mm -hmm. that perspective anymore. And I can't say for sure where I fall now. Like I'm certainly not advocating violence for violence sake, but I think there has to be, I think maybe if you carry, uh, the idea of tolerance out to its extreme, I think it ends up actually creating unsafe conditions for tolerance itself to survive. So I'm not sure, yeah. I'm not quite no, sure I, where I fall yet. I think that's a new thought. It's, it's a at. question that's applicable um, because, yeah, two years ago, I think the question of even of talking to a Nazi was an uh, academic one, hypothetical one. Yeah. Um, I'm, obviously, the, still, the Klan is still around in the U.S. Exactly. Um, you know, the, the police are, have a lot of that going on in their ranks. Um, plan, basically, yeah. you know, um, but it was a lot more underground, and just the idea of it surfacing um, raises those questions in a way that, you know, it's unclear whether a game like Wolfenstein is prepared to 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 help us answer, right? Um, because the because the very question that it's asking that society is asking is, you know, how to deal with Nazis now. Yeah. You know, before, uh, and, and it's the way that history sanitizes and flattens out um, quandaries because a lot of the same arguments being used to, to kind of bolster both sides of the argument, or both sides of the divide and, 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 and that encourages civil discussion yeah. were happening around World War II where they're like, you know, a lot of American mainstream media was saying, well, give them a give chance. Give them a chance, yeah, exactly. Um, they, you know, sure, they're obviously bad, but, you know, we can't just go around killing whoever we disagree with. Be un-American. Until, you know, then we had uh, a cascading series of events that we now know as uh, World War II and the Holocaust. So uh, you don't see the, you don't see the reality. I mean, it's very easy to, to not see things getting out of control. It's very easy to not see the danger yeah. of, a, of an ideology when you're, you know, not only um, at the same timeline as it, but also in a timeline like right now where everything is so distracting and so distracting, um, yeah. So easy to get lost in. So I think that's like, that's a question that I th you're, that you're coming to, you know. Yeah, that, that's exploring a, it. And I am as well. And like, you know, the, we're, we're liberal and um, mainstream values butt up against harsh reality and physical danger and physical, violence. Physical, exactly. I mean, exactly. and us in our privileged position, like, haven't necessarily had to deal with. It's true. It's true. So, you know. Yeah. So that's that's definitely like it's a big, big, it's a monumental change. Yeah. I think that we can track from our very first episode to now. It's like a personal change to obviously like a political change as well like America is seemingly a very different place than it was I mean the elements are all there the elements have always been yes, there absolutely um, but I think there maybe it's not that America is a different place but America has a different danger as you're saying when those elements are out in the open and yeah. actually not cowering and not afraid and not kept to the shadows but 
are being yeah. held up in the light and uh, are not disappearing by being exposed, but are being exactly yeah, but, yeah being, being reinforced. Yeah. I mean, and it, yeah, of course they're there. Like you know, we talked about it during our Injustice Two episode, oh, yeah. which I recently had had about you know growing up in New York in the '90s and going to high school together, and police brutality being a very like you know ev evident and ever present um, problem. And like you know, it's always funny to me. Like yes, yeah, seeing people. Uh, talk about Black Lives, Lives Matter, yeah, just like, it's, like it's a brand new thing. Yeah. Like you know, no, we've been marching against this stuff for decades. You know, so like, yeah. um, it's it's really more about I don't know. It, it is about um, the mainstream having to deal with this. Yeah. You know, exactly. it's always been there in the fringes. So you know, now it's now it's here. So absolutely, we so, can yeah. move on. We can move on. Um, so shortly after that, we talk yeah. about this game called the Talos Principle. Yeah, which is our second episode. So yeah. you know, we, you know. And that episode I liked a lot because it was, it really like kind of um, helped. I think it kickstarted our our, our ability to to dissect games, like yeah. because it was a game that we came at from very we had very different reactions. Very like, different reactions to <laughs> that yeah. shit. Yeah. Um, and obviously, describe yours, which is very strong. Talos Principle, <laughs> I fucking hated, and it's actually a really I think it's a really strong episode, even though I didn't like the game. Because Yusef had a very different reaction. He really enjoyed the game. You're still working through the DLC now, right? Or working like, through working it. Working yeah. through it. Um, but I was completely put off by the game. And I think it was one of those moments where I realized, you know, myself as a budding critic, like as a budding cultural commentator, let's say, that like it's really kind of difficult to separate your own, the context of like yourself from like how you talk about the game. Because I've been dealing with like even before we started the podcast, dealing with like kind of a, an evolving relationship with the concept of God. Uh, I'm an atheist, uh, and I was raised in going to like the Armenian church uh, here in New York. My grandmother was my Sunday school teacher. So, you know, God and church and shit played a big part of my life when I was a kid. But very quickly, I realized that I was not party to that belief system when I was young. Um, but it took me a long time to sort of come out with those feelings and really validate them. And so playing the Talos Principle, my lord, uh, to pun again, <laughs> but my god, the booming narrator voice, I still like hear it in my head, mm -hmm. the like voice of God in that game that was a designer, as so fucking frustrating and so game-breaking. It like took me out of the game every single time. And I had no problem with the puzzles themselves, mm. they were fine. Mm. The game design was fine, but I think the choice that that game made to be so steeped in religious rhetoric uh, and so pedantic with its God voice and its sort of Jesus cycle as the robot, like, I just was completely turned off from beginning to end, and I was yeah. just ranting about being an atheist for the entire episode. Yeah, and I, <laughs> but what was cool about it was, like, um, we started uh, started it off with, with you um, more... more uh, Speaking on the game on a general level and like uh, as like just this bad experience, and then by the end of the episode, we really narrowed it down to yeah, like we were saying the mechanics and the and the wrappings of the mechanics um, being at odds in your experience. So yeah. like you know if it like if it had been we had we brought up Antichamber, which is another puzzle game very similar to that and Portal, <clears throat> um, except that it really has uh, no uh, explicit narrative. It's all just you know context within the game very very minimal very very minimal and you know you like that game well, and like and for me like i need uh i needed more of a of a narrative hook so i kind of i need an explicit narrative to be there so it, it, i guess it really what, ma what what it depends on is 
not only if there's a story, but you know, if that if or if that wrapping is pleasant to you, like if it's comforting. Yeah. And if it's the opposite of comforting, if it's um, like off-putting. Yeah. If it's off-putting. It can even if the mechanics are fine, it can really just make the game unplayable. Yeah. So that's like I like that we're able to kind of unwrap the game in that way, and that like the first episode where we really got to the nitty gritty. Exactly. Um, I feel like we really just like broke the game apart and laid on the table and got such a good understanding of of not only the game but where of our take on puzzle games yeah. and and uh, game narratives and mechanics. I think that whole idea of like game narratives and their relationship to mechanics is something that we've talked about a lot throughout many of our episodes um, I think kind of flash forwarding a little bit more another of the episodes that we had was on this game called Her Story mm -hmm. uh, and that was one I mean if you guys haven't played Her Story yet definitely still have to highly recommend that one mm -hmm. I think it's like iOS yeah. and Android but it might be on some PC like, might be I feel PC like it's on everything well. yeah. yeah it might be on everything <laughs> maybe not console but yeah yeah and Her Story is just you know I, I remember at the time talking about how wonderful that sort of there was no ludonarrative dissonance. It was this incredible story being told through a 90s uh, computer terminal. Mm. And like the, the game took place within the computer and your entire way of interfacing with the game mechanics was through a computer interface, was that computer interface. And you never really left the screen. And it was so kind of perfectly succinct. You know, there's been other games that do this really, really well, like Paper, Papers, Please, and a whole bunch of games that are like just so kind of their, their story elements are in such wonderful harmony with their gameplay elements. I feel like that's become like a major theme throughout a lot of our different episodes, but her story kind of like cinched it for me where I was like, oh yeah, like we're talking about these games as cultural critics and not just like eight out of 10 mm -hmm. graphics. Yeah. Really. That one was really a game that like it kind of snapped into place for me. Mm. Felt really, really good. Yeah, I agreed. I mean, it, and it, we, I think we described it as like uh, Kind of a almost a toy box yeah. or a, a, a narrative puzzle or narrative toy. Yeah. Because it's a game where the mechanics are very simple and and limited, but they allow you to play with the narrative in a way that most mechanic com complicated mechanical games don't. Because um, you know you're basically to sum it up to in the game to to kind of progress. You are searching through. A series of recordings by looking up keywords, but you can look up like one keyword at a time. Yeah. So you're trying to find threads throughout this one woman's recounting of a series of days or weeks. So um, your the, your approach to that is very limited, but by limiting it, it makes it really take shape in your mind in a more in a way that I think if you had full access to the information, yeah, it was just true. like so the the way to make so by by limiting your access and by limiting your um, input, it actually makes the it, it gives the game more physicality. It gives like a story more physicality than if you were just being told it. And I think that's something that, that makes it so thoroughly a game and it, and in some ways a toy because yeah. you're kind of um, it's not as much about the endpoint as it is about getting to you know basically play with pieces of a story yeah. and fit them together, you know, put square blocks and square holes. And, exactly. Um, it really reminds me of how yeah. skeuomorphic the entire game is because yeah. truly, like, even the typing sounds that were produced when you were typing, mm -hmm. um, depending on whether you're playing on a touchscreen or a keyboard, you know, I'd play it, obviously, because it's like a full motion video game, I always had headphones on, 
Um, and I was playing it on the like iPad 2 at the time to like put some history back on this <laughs> retrospective. Uh, so back in the iPad 2, um, you know, typing on the soft keyboard, the software keyboard, but still the game insisted upon putting in these old like clacky clack keyboard sounds and like the sort of dot matrix style screen that was like, you know, had scan lines and shit to it. Everything was just really uh, skeuomorphic. It brought you into yeah. this world and I think reinforces a lot of what you're saying where it's like, not classic video game, but kind of fits more into toy space where mm -hmm. it's the act of playing with the interface that produces the, the, the it's a it's an active form of play. It's yeah. not just like a video game world sitting there waiting for you to pilot an avatar. You're, you're just like picking up the entire experience and manipulating it directly. Yeah, yeah it's a kind of, uh, you know, a lot of times the word immersion gets thrown around and it's not necessarily um, immersing you into the experience as much as it's just kind of cutting up the middleman of, yeah. by removing an avatar. It's almost like a no interface game, yeah, weirdly enough. <laughs> yeah, by making the interface so surface level and so um, uh, on the for so foregrounded, it really makes it feel like you are, like you're not in some world, like the world is just like you're the screen in front of you, yeah. um, which doesn't, yeah, it's not exactly immersion, so it's like kind of a different category. Yeah. That's really cool. It's really, really yeah. cool. Where were we, man? Damn, her story. When was that even? Check the date on that shit. <laughs> so, so long. When yeah. you think about it, it's like we're we're also like on oh yeah, videogamehour.com. You're probably <laughs> already there checking this out. But uh, where was it? Here we go. Beginners hour. Oh my god, we tried some different format stuff though. September twenty third, two thousand fifteen. So yeah. we've been at this for a while, man. We have. It's been a long time. Holy moly! I guess I was at that point still working at Atari. That's crazy time. Wow. Yeah. I just want to look at when Our, Wolfenstein came out. Oh, wait, oh that's yeah. All the way back. Crazy way town. Back. Good radio. Look, it's looking at our website. January uh, 18th, 2015. 2015. Yeah. So yeah. 2015. Almost three years. That's true. Yeah. In a couple of months. All right. That will be the case. Um, but yeah, let's move on to uh, the next thing we want to we talk, want, you wanted to talk about, which is The Witness. Yeah, The Witness. And this was another one where I think it was kind of immediately apparent that we could no longer separate um, the criticism from the context like how we talked about games was at least in the witness episode for me personally it was just impossible to separate like i was going through a really really rough time actually um during uh our playthrough of the witness it was uh this winter uh before i got married whoa we got married we both got oh, yeah. married we oh, wait, we're not married to each other. <laughs> like we, we, got, we got married. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, we both got married in yes. the intervening times and started this podcast. But we were basically, uh, my now wife, my fiance at the time, uh, was in Japan uh, for like six or seven weeks. Like it was like a long time. It was the longest time we'd been apart. Um, and we were also renovating our apartment, which should be a joyous time, but if you've ever renovated an apartment, you'll know <laughs> it is not. It's a very, very <laughs> difficult time. So from this totally privileged position of angst and woe, um, I was going through, I was displaced from my home for the first time, like, ever, basically. Like, I could not be home because there were no walls. Um, I was living with my mom, which, again, totally lucky to have that ability, but... As anybody who knows, when you move back in with your <laughs> folks, it's rough. It's a tad bit infantilizing. A tad bit infantilizing. I was going through some rough times on a personal note, too, just like dealing with like a whole bunch of crazy emotions. So during that time to sort of cope with a lot of these things, I tried for the first time in my life meditating. Um, and I was reading books on uh, mindfulness meditation practices and daily, twice a day, uh, doing meditation. And 
it was amazing. It was incredibly powerful, like mind-changing, life-changing shit. And so I remember playing Witness, and I'm, now I'm like, now that I can put myself back in that place, meditation mind and playing the Witness mind were really similar to me. It was hard for me to separate what it felt like to play the Witness from when I was in the deep mind meditation state. So necessarily, that episode, when you go back and listen to it, or when I went back and listened to it, so much of what I was talking about was that experience of coming to meditation as a practice. Uh, and I, I really couldn't see beyond that. You know, so much of what I was holding the game up to, which I still haven't completed, by the way. So much of it was... Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> so much of it was really about putting my, my context, my sense of place, into my experience of playing the game. Hmm. And I, it's one of those things that I realize now that I do no matter what. Like, when I'm consuming media, when I'm reading a book, when I'm uh, watching a movie, when I'm playing a game, you can't help but put yourself into it. And I think games are a remarkably... Um, ego-driven experience due to their interactivity. And I know on some episodes we've talked about this, like inhabiting the character really changes your relationship with the media and the medium. Uh, and I think no more apparent than our episode in The Witness when I was like coming to meditation, um, I really just took over my entire play experience. But mm -hmm. I know you had a very different reaction to The Witness. Yeah, it was kind of like an inverse of the Artalos episode, I think, yeah. um, where I really didn't like The Witness. Um, and it was partially, again, tying to real life the my distaste for the creator. Absolutely. You know, I just don't like John Blow. I think he's very full of himself. You're not the only person who thinks that <laughs> way, you said. It's <laughs> popular. And it's often a, a, something that's unfairly leveled at creators. But I just couldn't, um, you know, detach my personal feelings from that. And I, I did give it a fair shake, and I played a good chunk of it. But it just, like, you know, not only because of... Also because of the fact that it is so unending. And yeah. have, I mean, there is, like, a shot to the end at some point. But you can also wander off course. And it doesn't always tell you when you're doing that. Um, and that is an interesting part of the game, and the game, I, I do res totally respect that, like, the, its ties to meditation and its ties to looking at nature in a different way. Um, like, there was that, there's a really good video about the way the game kind of opens up, um, or just, like, kind of, it, it does a lot for a game, and, you know, the, the way the, the game's world is so intricately, intricately designed. Yes. And I, I totally appreciate that, but it was really, um a case of it just not being for me like yeah. it was just um i certainly you know I, I recognized in my dislike of it my own impatience with um certain mechanics and like, mechanics that really force you to unblock parts of your your mind you yeah know, like that that are challenging to the point where it's no longer uh it's no longer a diversion. It's no longer a, a pastime. It's, yeah. You know, it's not strictly fun. It's really, uh, I think Blow was going for it more than that I when he so made too. the game. Yeah. And um, respect the intent, but... Fuck um, that guy. Yeah, <laughs> fuck that guy. But it's interesting, too, because, you know, we, maybe we do, but I don't hear very often in games criticism mm -hmm. the... Um, tying of the artist or the creator to the consideration of the work. Like, we do this a lot with music. Like, society does this a lot with music. The judging of someone's music 
by their character. Mm -hmm. We do this with actors as well uh, in film and in television. Like we are not able to enjoy the media that an artist has created once they've fallen from grace. Yeah. Um, this has happened with lots of different artists from the Woody Allens to the Cosbys to the, you know, all, all sorts of walks that have, you know, there's, there's tons of it that, go, that goes on where we can't really separate the art from the artist. Mm -hmm. um, but in games, we have some pretty despicable creators. Sure. You know? and, and so often I think that there is a corner of games criticism that talks about that relationship, but I think on a mainstream level, maybe it's just the sort of virulent nature of the majority of games audiences right now, like the Gamergate kind of ness of it. But like, you know, John Blow uh, is a butt. Mm -hmm. Definitely, he's mm -hmm. definitely a butt, <laughs> um, and that's vague intentionally. Uh, but I think also, you know, you have guys like Notch, right? Mm -hmm. Like. Notch, the creator of Minecraft, that <laughs> luckily Microsoft took away from him. But really, when you think about it, like, that guy is a fucking shitposting, like, neoconservative fuckwit. And he's the creator of, like, the only game you would trust alone with your children, you know? Beloved by children and Beloved families alike. Beloved by children and families <laughs> alike. Like, grandpa plays fucking Minecraft, right? And yet the creator is a pretty despicable guy. Um, I don't know. There's just something there. Is it is it something about the community that supports the medium, or is there something inherent in the medium that allows the separation of the creator and the and the and the art? Maybe maybe it's tough in mass market games because they're such collective uh, endeavors. They're like studio pictures. Like hundreds of people work on the big AAA games. Mm -hmm. But a game like The Witness or a game like Minecraft. They're also tied to the story of being created by like one person, you know, like a singular mind. Yeah, I think there's um, there's a lot there to unpack. Yeah, maybe uh, in the I mean, <laughs> like a, just all I can to add to it slightly is really to discuss like um, the, the 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 great man mythology, like yeah. uh, that I think a lot of you know people you know, we buy into as a culture because it's so. You know, we we buy into meritocracy and to that aspect of capitalism where we want to believe that this man deserves to, you know, tell us what to do and tell us what to play because and they did it by their bootstraps. Yeah, they're just so smart and talented. Yeah. Um. And you and I feel like <clears throat> maybe it goes to their head. Maybe it they start to you know drink their own Kool Aid. Yeah. Um. Th there's like this. Um. I think there's an ongoing yeah mythology that. To be successful or talented, you have to be an asshole. You know, like uh, Steve Jobs. Oh yeah. His autobiography is super popular, and he was a complete asshole to his family, oh, miserable, yeah. miserable person, um, asshole to his employees, made them work overnight. Yep. You know, never ride an elevator with Steve Jobs, or you'll lose your job. <laughs> Literally. That, that was like the. There was like a big, like, terrible urban myth about like you know the, boss, oh, the, the hell, fear like, of the boss. Yeah, like, don't yeah, get into an elevator with whatever. Steve Jobs, or you will not have a job by the end of the day. Yeah. Um, so I think there's that kind of. <clears throat> Um, assumption that goes into justifying like uh, these powerful white dudes, like yeah, that mainly white dudes. Yeah, and like you know that, that that then infects so many other things. Like for example, the the Google memo coming out oh, recently, yeah. where oh, an employee you know wrote this shitty memo and that argued that women weren't um, 
physically able to compete with men. And there were deep psychological differences. In term, yeah, in terms of the, their, their, yeah, how they could men. think and how they could, you know, it's just like complete pseudoscience, yeah, sexist garbage, Misogyny, um, basically. which John Blow didn't completely discount and has had tweeted. You um, guys misunderstood yeah, that the writer's misunderstood. intention. So I think these things are super connected, like, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the sexism in the, in the industry and the attachment to these great leader, these great mind um, mythologies that that create people like Notch and John Blow and even Ken Levine who, you know, got, you know, he, he's a much different scale of creator, like he's not um, a neoconservative as far as I can tell. As far as I can tell. But, you know, his company, like, was ended after Bioshock Infinite and, and uh, all those workers were let go and I don't think he was really that responsible when that happened, you know, no. he like, he saved a few of his, like, cohorts and then the rest of the workers were gone after that, yeah. um, despite probably having crunched for a year, yeah, <laughs> maybe quite, more than a year, to make fucking problem. To, actually, to follow his like dream of the Bioshock Infinite. This kind of reminds me of an article. We should find. I'll find a link to it. We can uh, link to it in the description. It's like uh, it was Ian Bogost, who's a prickly pear, but a really really smart guy. Um, and Ian Bogost did a fantastic article about the weird like underlying uh, psychology of the people who basically birthed VR mm. and like how VR is this like intense like power grab and like power fantasy um, by these like predominantly white nerdy men mm. who grew up in the sort of like uh, weird science reality or like revenge of the nerds reality where they felt abused and they felt victimized by their great intelligence and by their you know weird hobbies and habits and essentially like it's creating this virtual space where they're all powerful and I'm butchering the article but it's totally well worth the read it kind of feels connected absolutely it sounds space. connected yeah, yeah VR well, launched in the time that we uh, and uh, who did, who led that but fucking Palmer but Lucky but fucking shit poster extraordinaire Palmer Lucky it's a uh, yeah. technology man what a shitty place to be yeah and and because it is allowed to pass off as um, obje you know objective and um, pure because it's research based and yeah. you know no way that research could be influenced by your um, by your ideology or, or your or your mental framework so you know I think um, that kind of sums up a lot of John Blow and the witness I mean the witness I think has a lot of value as a game but, but you were affected by the creator yeah, yeah I think it's worth continuing to discuss what it means when we attach importance to creators yeah and when they you know, kind of get big-headed and over that importance, and sometimes go along, or go over to the other side and jump the shark, and end up being complete assholes. Speaking of big heads jumping the shark, <laughs> I think another really interesting episode that we did was actually Uncharted Four. <laughs> Sorry, that was the perfect Nathan Drake. He's just got a really big head. I was thinking and he of jumps actually big-headed Nathan Drake. I think he has a pretty big head, it's actually, or maybe just maybe big hair. above average. Yeah, size. slightly oversized head that one. Yeah. But Uncharted 4 was cool because that episode was one of the first time that we kind of freaked our formula. Mm -hmm. uh, we invited a guest on. Um, yeah. And it was really great. I actually loved I loved it. We've had guests for a couple of our other episodes as well. I think Mafia 3, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, and Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. But Uncharted 4 was the first time that we invited a guest on. It was Joe Russ. Yeah, Joe Russ, yeah. who is creator of the upcoming game. Jenny LeClue. Jenny LeClue, yes. which we're closer can't, now. Can't wait. Closer. We're closer now. It's still in development, but it's closer now, yeah. so that's changed. And he's in Florida, so here's hoping that you Yo. are safe, Joe. <laughs> Yo, yeah, right now there's like a... Oh, yeah, another thing that's changed, the climate. 
Yeah. Bam. <laughs> you like that one? Boom. Making, Climate it, making it harder to play video games. Yes. Because hey. hurricanes are literally being <laughs> lobbed at us rapid fire by a very angry and warm ocean. Yes. Um, which is warming, I, you know, climate change uh, is real. We also had a solar eclipse, so the Earth is round. Um, <laughs> so all you flat earthers can go uh, probably already having sex with your mothers, but you can continue <laughs> to do so, you inbred weirdo. Sorry. That's a, the, 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 yeah, the, rewind. Rewind. Uh, Uncharted 4. Uncharted 4. And, and uh, yeah. Heartwarming story of a genocidal maniac. Love it. Yeah. But uh, we, I wanted to bring it up mainly because of the guest thing. And I think um, just to address that, we are going to keep, you know, bringing on guests. I think it's it always really enriches the episodes yeah, when we bring them on. Because, you know, we have our uh, we have our repertoire and our opinions and that we kind of share and, 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 and bounce off of each other. But adding a third voice there really, um, and, and I think, enriches and kind of grows that discussion beyond what we could do just the two of us. Yep. Obviously we're also two dudes, two straight dudes, and we're trying to like um, get as many different people, different kinds of voices, women, um, non-white people, you know, get yeah. them involved with the, um, with the podcast. You know, I think a, a challenge obviously is that I know people on Twitter, but then they're not, they live in New York, and I like the physical, um, yeah, local nature of of our discussions. I think it, it makes it easier to talk, you know, as you can see, just two of us talking back and forth. It's a little bit, I think, more natural than Skype. Though, Joe, we did bring him on Skype, and it was yep. still fine, so I'm okay with continuing to attempt doing that. Yep. Just thinking out loud about guests and trying to, you know, figure out uh, new ways to get people on the podcast. Yeah, and actually, other than the guest as a sort of freak of our format, we've also messed with video before, mm. which you may have seen. We did a couple of live streams uh, on Twitch, which we sort of captured also on our website. So if you just like keep on scrolling, you'll eventually hit some video. Um, we did a playthrough, a full playthrough of Inside, mm. which was super, super fun. Inside was the sequel to Limbo yes. by Playdead Studios. Speaking um, of climate change. Speaking of climate change, <laughs> yeah. The game. Exactly. Um, so yeah, we've tried video before, but as sort of a playthrough, we also did something called the Beginner's Hour. Uh, Beginner's Hour episode was where uh, Yusef basically talked me through one of his favorite game series, uh, the Souls sort of series of games. I think we were playing Bloodborne. We or were. Was it Dark yeah. Souls? Yeah, it was Bloodborne. Um, Bloodborne, which is like cousin to the Souls games, uh, which I continuously buy but never finish. So Yusef was sort of showing me the ropes on that. It was pretty cool. Yeah, and hopefully we'll keep doing more of those. I, I know. Uh, you have some games that you hold dear to your heart yeah. and that you'll hopefully get to explain to me why you, why you feel that way. <laughs> it's true. Actually, kind of weirdly enough, and we didn't talk this through in the lead up to the show, but like one of the elephants in the room that we've mentioned on a couple of the episodes was like Metal Gear Solid. Why have we never played any of the Metal Gear Solid games which I hold so near and dear to my heart? Like other than Legend of Zelda, it's really just Metal Gear Solid, which is my favorite franchise of all time. And I think just to... You know, spoiler alert, I can't remember if it was the Witness episode or the one right after we were talking about it. Metal Gear Solid, the, the Phantom whatever the fuck released. Yeah. Um, the final Metal, Metal Gear Solid game with Hideo Kojima at the helm. And it was god-awful. Like, it was one of the worst games I've ever... I mean, mechanically it was fine, but like... To carry the Metal Gear Solid name as such a super freak fan as I was, <laughs> it was more insult and injury than it was a good time. So, I mean, maybe we can cover Death Stranding. Maybe yeah. we can cover Death Stranding. That could be kind of cool. <laughs> that would be really cool. No actually. promises, but maybe, yeah, no maybe, promises. maybe. Yeah. So yeah, another one. Yeah. Really, just to speak to the point, it's like the Uncharted thing. 
having guests on the Let's Plays, the Beginner's Hour, we, and even this video, we really like experimenting with format. It shows that we're not, like, we're not done. You know, this, no. this process is becoming, uh, and it's, it's constantly evolving. We're, like, the reason we're doing this podcast to begin with is not only just to talk about games, but to, to grow how we talk about games. You yeah. know, if we just um, are speaking about games over a beer or dinner, it's fine, but um, by forcing ourselves to embrace different formats, it, I think it changes like, um, the, the discussion yeah. because it, 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 it makes it more serious and more, I don't know, something that we're, you're investing more of your energy and time in, and I think it's been super beneficial to us to do that. Totally. But and speaking of different formats, <laughs> yeah. um, we tried a format that never made it to air for oh, no, that's Man, right. no Man's Sky. No Man's Sky. We <laughs> Here's something that did not end up making the cut. Kind of like our 256 episode. Yeah. One of our episodes, we went and recorded a bunch of stuff at the Kill Screen 256 Festival, and promptly the data was corrupted, so we never actually mm. got to do that. But another experiment, as Yusuf was saying, yeah. uh, we were playing through No Man's Sky when it first released. So the early access version of No Man's Sky. Yes. And to give the game a bit more um, story, which was so sorely lacking in that V1 release, Yusef uh, and I decided to start doing audio recordings as if they were uh, like captain's logs in our own ship mm. uh, or in our own sort of story. A kind of a gameplay journal or diary uh, that tracked some of the more interesting planets or places that we got to and... And, and yeah, kind of role-play it as if we were literally leaving, you know, space logs, like yeah. Star Trek style. And I think uh, maybe owing to the flat nature of the game experience, <laughs> it just didn't um, stick. <laughs> like, it didn't, and it, and it also being a lot of work yeah, to do uh, extra audio logs in addition, to, in addition to the podcast. Yeah. So we, we never ended up publishing it. So it's kind of a behind-the-scenes sort of Yeah, thing. I still uh, have my recordings somewhere. Yeah, maybe, maybe we should put them on sometime. We'll, that would like, be funny. We'll put over some footage. Yeah, we'll try totally. and try like, and yeah, add some like, cool like, distortion effects. Yeah, man. <laughs> and we were basically like, uh, we were ping-ponging the logs as if like, because in the game there was much to the you know, chagrin of anybody who was promised or you know, multiplayer by the trailers in the game. There was no real multiplayer when it launched. So we were just like, we, the plan was to like record a bunch of these things and like ping pong them back and forth as if we were like finding each other's logs or whatever. But we yeah. kind of ran out of kind of like a, a pen pal space space space, pal, space pen pals space pen pals lovers in a dangerous space time. If yes. you were oh, another episode. Another episode. So you should listen to <laughs> I'm it. Just dropping. I'm just dropping. Sure. Um, um, but the thing is, now I'm actually uh, back in No Man's Sky. Now a full two years later, <laughs> the game is fucking aces. It's really really fun now. Mm. There's they made a bunch of really large and really subtle uh, changes to the game, and I'm I mean mind you I'm only you know six seven hours into. Uh, restart playthrough yeah. in the new version, but I'm loving it. A Definitely. lot of the rougher edges yeah. have been smoothed out, um, and there's definitely just there's substantially more, but just enough story. It's not so much story and not so like pedantic. Follow the critical path. It still has that really. I remember talking about how it being a very it's a very non-urgent game. There's mm -hmm. nothing that like forces me back to it the way that like a linear narrative game yeah. might. Um, it still has that relaxing, like, get-baked-and-play-a-game-ness to it, which I still love to do, but there's just enough forward momentum, and there's much more clarity about the game's systems that it just feels like a complete, complete game, and it yeah. really is fun right now, so 
I'm, I'm really enjoying getting back. I mean, that. you know, better late than never. I, yeah. I appreciate that they are, you know, uh, releasing it yeah. and it, and making, working you know, on working it. Yeah, on it. Working yeah on they're it. continuing to work on a game that they could have just left alone and done their own thing afterward. I, so I think they they probably feel some some um, sense of uh, maybe um, of ownership over the experience where they want it to be as good as it can be. Yeah. I gotta give them praise because they survived to hell. Like absolutely, those guys were put through the fucking ringer, and mostly undeserved. Like you know, it's just a game. Yeah, Um, it's just a game, and people do not treat it treat it as such, and that's really unfortunate. And uh, you know that that it's that they've developed it further and made um, a more complete experience is great, but I don't think they needed to. Yeah, it, it was not owed to us. It was not bad. It was <laughs> you know, not bad. It was not bad. It dropped off. It was. It was. Bad. It was a, yeah, I enjoyed what I played of it. I feel like I got. An, I got a good experience out of it. Yeah. Until I stopped. You know. Until I eventually. Stopped. I mean, there's plenty of games that I get bored of after a while. Like yeah. that's how I it works. Go to Twitter you know? to like burn them alive. Right? <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, I think you know, meta lesson learned. It's really risky to promise people the entire galaxy. <laughs> you know, in all yes. things. In games, of course, but in all things, don't promise people a galaxy. Algorithms will not save us. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, and then I think another one where we had uh, an interviewee was Sean Alexander. Yeah. Yep. We had Sean Alexander to come talk about Mafia 3. Uh, and Mafia 3, I think for me, was another one of those moments where the game that I was playing uh, was so succinctly matching up with kind of where I was contextually in my life and my own sort of explorations. Mm-hmm. Only because I had, as we were deciding to play Mafia 3, which is this like big, uh, very forward in terms of its depictions of uh, racism in America, GTA-style game, uh, where you're like this big, hulking Vietnam vet. It's like black dude returning to America after Vietnam to like the Baton Rouge area, basically, right? Sure, um, yeah. A fictional uh, New Orleans. A fictional, yeah. a fictional New Orleans. And coming back into like an incredibly racist society that does not want him there, uh, and falling into a life of crime, as all good mafia games should do. Uh, and so I just happen, happen to be, as I'm going into this game, it's incredibly race conscious, or racism conscious. Uh, I just happen to be finishing. I'm like, I read about eighty percent of all of James Baldwin's written works, like his essays and his novels, uh, and I had just reread for the first time since high school uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X. So this was a time where, you know, as you were referring to way before, like a lot of America was waking up, was waking up to things that we had been con- like Yusuf and I had been conscious to throughout going to police brutality protests uh, through the 90s, but also just really hit home. There was a, I think there was a sort of cadence of um, horrible uh, cases of police murder uh, mm-hmm. of predominantly black men, uh, from everything from traffic stops to walking home from school or from work, uh, from all walks of economic life and in all places in America. So I, I had felt very, like personally, just like, it had incensed me to the point where I was starting to reread these books and, and read new books by prominent um, black voices. So I think picking up and playing that game, I was just like ready. I was just like very ready for that game's context. And so it kind of felt like another one of those moments where like there was just like a perfect kind of marriage of the context of the critic and the criticism itself. Yeah, I think it was a, um, it was a good time to, to play it. It came out at a really opportune time. Yeah. And it really influenced a lot of my thinking about games afterwards. For example, uh, I think our ne- very next episode was Hitman. Oh God! Um, <laughs> where you play the whitest guy imaginable. The whitest guy. 
And it was just so interesting to, to compare those experiences and it led me to write a piece about um, the idea of the, of the spy and why it's so necessarily white. And I had, uh, speaking of like um, concurrent reading, I, had, I, was, I was reading Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, um, which is a really important book and talking about like a kind of a young black man's uh, experience in, in the South and then Harlem and the nature of being black in America where you are invisible until you're, abs until you're not, you know, you have little control over whether you are invisible and in Hitman you have total control over whether you are invisible yep. and that's why it's so um, linked to the, this concept of whiteness, uh, the, the ability to get away with all sorts of things that you couldn't if you were not white. So I think that, and, and in Mafia 3, it, that is definitely the case. For example, you know, if you go in certain neighborhoods, uh, people run away from you, uh, cops come fa get called faster, yeah. or call, if you go in certain stores, you, get kick, you know, you get kicked out, or they'll call, once again, bring the ever-present threat of the police down on you. Um, <clears throat> and while there's like a security threat in the Hitman stages, like, it's so easy to blend into the crowd. Yeah where it wouldn't be in, in uh, fewer, you know, not white. So I think that what it really, uh, playing Mafia 3 and then Hitman allowed me to really like um, coalesce and, uh, my, my opinion on and my understanding, I guess, of uh, this kind of visualized racism and this, um, this idea of the white gaze yes. on non-white bodies. So I think, and like, you know, we, we were both were kind of getting peripheral um, feedback that were like they were then like inter interspose or inter inter like um, interspersing within the game structure yep. and within the experience of playing the game yep. that enriched the experience a lot and like totally. that um, like I'm really glad that we managed that that we just happened to to kind of line the, those two games up and and some of the other games yeah you know and I think something that I really respected in particular about Sean uh, our guest on that episode was we had before we had a fantastic episode um, with our first guest it was great but I think something about Sean's personality and continence I had a lot of respect for how much he was able to come into a space with us because we have such an established relationship and cadence of speech and the way we talk about games what I loved about him I don't know if you remember it this way but like I loved how much he was able to challenge us mm. and hold his own space mm. within our show within our episode because you know before we record these or before we in now in this case video we have a quick conversation about what we want to cover we almost do like a pre-conversation and like bullet out a few things that we know we want to talk about um and what i really respected about sean was that he showed up ready to talk mm. uh and he really on a couple of different points that either of us made he was pushing back didn't matter if we were the host didn't matter that he was in yusef's home at the time like sitting in our living rooms there was a there was a real confidence and a real clarity to his take on the game, and he really did not like the game, uh, and I thought that was really uh, valuable to make such a powerful episode. I thought it was one of our better Absolutely. episodes. Yeah, I, I it went agree. long too. It was one of the yeah. longest episodes you've ever done because yeah. I did not want it to stop. Absolutely, it was, it was a great discussion, and I and I recommend you listen to it if you haven't already. You know, like I think it, we brought up a ton of good points um, about um, you know where the game succeeds and fails. Yeah. And just the the idea of existing um, as a game about blackness in a space that's so white, so, like yeah. video game space. So a real uh, big theme, or during the during our discussion, or a big uh, topic that came up repeatedly was the um, the responsibility of these of you know of of a, of a piece of black work to represent all of blackness, you know, uh, and the kind of 
the demand that we put on it to do so because there's so little other opportunities to, to, to fill that gap and there's so little other perspectives within like the, or so little other, um, so, so few um, examples of black media that can lend different angles and perspectives and, and, and socioeconomic places or political worldviews. It's always so rare that we then it then, it then is unfairly almost asked to represent an entire oh, man. Um, zeitgeist and community. Absolutely, yeah. and I think that's again one of the horrible effects of like the white gaze on not just in this case black media or media that portrays black mm. culture and all of its diversity. Like, yeah. I think there's I think that's kind of the consequence of it. It's like every time we see a story or every time we see we the white like the like non person of color looking in on what is an outside voice or an outside narrative, mm -hmm. we are so fucking myopic that we have to make it a story of an entire people or an yeah. entire personage. And I think it's something, I mean, everybody's guilty of, including like the creators and people and the fans of the show, I mean, of the, of the game or the movie or the show. I, I was just talking um, to some people on, online about Insecure. Mm. Um, oh yeah, which is a really good show. I recommend that one. Mm -hmm. um, great soundtrack, awesome art design. And but a recent episode has gotten the fans kind of yeah talking, exactly. Right? Um, essentially, there was like yeah, not to swell too much, but there's like a plot arc where one of the characters is giving her not boyfriend, man, hook up her hookup yeah uh, a blowjob, and then um, he comes in her face by accident. And uh, it kind of causes a huge rift between them, and sure. you know breaks them up. And like in previous in the, previously in the episode, a lot the, the main characters are kind of discussing blowjobs as this uh, unique, um, I guess, problem with in terms of like the self-image of black women. Mm. And a lot of the fans were kind of disagreeing on that point and saying that you know we had moved past discussing blowjobs as this like taboo or, 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 or you know, dis describing it as almost regressive to, to put so much onus on, on that um, particular, particular sexual act. Right. And <clears throat> so it, what it came down to was uh, some black women saying, it's not, that's not important to me. And then the show writer saying, but that is important to us and that is part of our experience. So it, it's a case where, you know, because it's like one of the, Maybe the only it's like the only, only show, only, yeah, a black, but specifically black women, a black woman experience, and led by a black woman starring a black woman, that um, it's unfairly asked to speak to all black women. Yeah. Um, and then you're like, well, no, it's that's her experience, and that's the writers, the writers of the show ex experience, and we have to respect that. And then yeah. it's not a problem of quality. It's not a problem of uh, virtue. It's a problem of volume. Yeah. Maybe we just need more black stories, right? Like maybe we just absolutely need more, like we definitely do. diversity and and not just black stories. I mean. Of course, we need more black stories specifically in America, but I think also like any stories oh, right. of non-normative uh, or of marginalized people. Like, if we had more, we of have them, to basically get past the level of token and um, you know icon, icon and and exactly it's um, one-dimensional representation unfair, that you can only get across so much in any story you tell. It's not impossible to demand to to be like kind of the vanguard and the the person that sets the trend exactly um, because while it's very important that you do so and it's great that Issa Rae is doing that with Insecure you know she should only be one of many like to yeah. come so like, yeah. I think that's something that we saw with Mafia 3 for sure and I think we're gonna keep seeing until it's not an issue anymore and hopefully Insecure is just like kind of 
um, the the tip of the iceberg, right? And like the, the beginning of a trend versus, yes, you know, I, I hope so. I, or just, I don't want it to be like, you know, the 90s again where like we had Fresh Prince and Different World and then there was like, and since then, like, where the fuck are the black where sitcoms? Where the fuck are the black sitcoms? <laughs> I hear good things about Blackish. My wife watches that. I do hear good things about that. Yeah. She's not like a regular watcher, but every time she watches, she's like, why don't I watch this show all the time? So I have I I hear yet really to try fun. it. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. liked the Netflix take on. Um, dear white people mm-hmm. but I think that again is such a it's almost not a good example within this category because it, it's specifically a show that does have black protagonists and it's centered in black stories but it's a relational show mm. whiteness is always at the door yeah. you know so it's not an independent black story mm. or it's not an independent non and like, it, whiteness yeah. is, is party to that story it's reactive it's reactive um, so yeah. I think even in there it doesn't actually serve as a a solid example because it has to necessarily to play it safe with that white like that white gaze yeah. it needs to sometimes venture into straight up parody yeah. and straight up like you know it addresses its own tokenism but it still is at times token it's weird it's a, it's I like the show like I enjoy yeah. it but I don't yeah. think it's, no, it's actually an example I totally, of what you're talking about I totally get it yeah um, but we are getting a bit afield yeah but we are kind of back to the present day in a way we right? are like Mafia yeah. 3 was ra- rather recent in yeah. terms of episodes so it might be worth us talking about some stuff that's kind of changed since then. Like, are like how how have we sort of changed our relationships with with games in general? Like, yeah. do we feel a change? Do you feel a change? Um, I I definitely do. I mean, obviously, I, I brought up that I've been writing, and I think that makes a big difference with um with with how I approach games. Like, do I see them as, you know, when I'm playing a game, I have to kind of consider whether there's pitchable material there, whether there's right. some ideas in there that I could then turn into an article and so that's always something that's in the back of my mind and that changes how I approach the games and sure. um, you know there's always the the guilty kind of uh, question of whether are, am I just like wasting you know wasting time right now if I'm playing a game purely for pleasure sure. um, you know but I, I do still want to write you know um, retain that, that that aspect of it because I mean writing I don't think is ever going to be a full-time uh, job for me it's just like at, at this stage it's not you don't get rich right it's not sustainable you, not just you nobody <laughs> nobody does um, other than Stephen King and you know like I mean maybe it'll change in the future but I doubt it and um, you know I want to keep doing it but I like hope you do I like I like where it, where it, thank you yeah. I like where it's at as a hobby for me okay. so um, I think that I'm it's important to keep um, playing games that may not have value as a topic of discussion but you know it's kind of interesting just how often you can sometimes come up with ideas like that you didn't think a game could provide. Like uh, one of the last pieces I wrote was for Waypoint about Injustice 2 being kind of like a faulty superhero allegory. Damn and good article too. That I didn't even I didn't think I was going to write a piece about that because it's like a silly cartoon fighting <laughs> game. <laughs> it's true, yeah. And um, but then like uh, the editor of Vice, uh, Austin, hit me up and you know because they were do- they were doing a week about prisons and games and I had er- I had written a piece about prison architect and um, it's kind of the, the way it, it fails to simulate I guess um, all more like aspects of prison life that were more relevant to prisoners uh, health and and freedom and become, and and didn't really address the fact that prisons were are currently you know being used to generate a shitload of very cheap to free labor and um, other income sources and are basically a business, uh, and, and so like kind of I was talking about I was talking about prisons in that and for in relation to that game, and he asked me if I had any pictures for the prison week. So I kind of like 
took a walk and thought about um, this aspect of injustice too, yeah. and it kind of coalesced in a, into a really strong idea that I did not think was there at all when I was first started playing it. Yeah. So. I think as long as I keep playing games, then I'm going to generate ideas, and that's like a fun part of writing about them. Yeah. Because there's always, and and I think the podcast has helped that that um, muscle in my brain. Absolutely. You know, because we play a game, and then we're like with a regular cadence, we're back to talk about it. And we, yeah, and we have to generate something to talk about. You know, like yeah. so that I think that's a creative muscle that has to be exercised. Totally. And we do with the podcast. Yeah, totally. It's, it's interesting to think about practice, right? The word practice, but also the verb practice, right? Like here we have established a really, really regular cadence of practice. And it's exactly as you were saying, like a practice of um, not just passively consuming, but of like digesting. Mm. And digesting the culture that we love so much, the interactive culture that we love so much. Um, and for me, I, I definitely see my relationship with games changing. Uh, partially because it's one of the forms of leisure free time that I have that I, I control, i.e. I can put it down, or I can pick it up. And I know there's games where I'm much more compulsive about my relationship with them. I'll like be zoned in. I'm like a super fan of a certain franchise. Like when Breath of the Wild drops, that was my life. Sure. I played the <laughs> shit out of that game. Yeah, yeah. Many, many nights where Jess slept alone, you know, <laughs> and like I come to bed like hours later, bleary eyed, and just like pass out next to her. And she yeah. was like, I miss my husband. I was like, I miss the Mava Clins. Like the Mava Clins. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, I need to kill them. They just keep wait, coming back, darling. Keep coming back. One of these games every six years, maybe eight. <laughs> like, you're going to be patient with me. Welcome to the rest of your life. So, death, do this part, motherfucker. <laughs> no, but then there's other. Now I'm in this place where, you know, work. It has intensified for me. Like my full time job has intensified. When we started this podcast, I was not full time. Yep. You know, the Atari gig was uh, basically permalance. I'd work my hours that it took me to get my projects completed. Um, and the time that I was with Killscreen was, of course, partnered in a business. So, you know, I'd work from wherever I was. Um, now I'm at a full time job. Uh, and now, even that mental exhaustion of coming home after a day of work, there are still. Uh, other things that I'm wanting to do with my free time and writing is one of them but not for like vice or whatever I've been working on a creative project uh, for the last few months I've dropped hints about it on previous episodes but like you know games are one of the things that I have under my control so I've meaningfully been cutting back on the time that I spend playing them so that I can make space for these other creative projects that I do want to complete hmm. um, what that's done though is it's a and and actually I think the relationship with this show it's allowed me to accept my critical nature. I have a critical nature. I'm an optimist, and people talk to me that I'm like a, a big muppet. I'm gooey, and I'm fun, and I'm extrovert, or whatever. But I have a critic in me, mm -hmm. and I'm critical of things. I'm very when my when that part of my brain turns on, it's on. And I think this podcast, uh, and also the effect that it's had upon my play, has actually allowed me to become more comfortable with that inner critic. And so now, with less time to play games. Uh, and with this critical self-acceptance, I can push it down more easily. If I'm really not enjoying a game, mm -hmm. it's fucking dust, man. Yeah. And I don't feel this weird guilt to like, oh yeah, maybe after 20 hours, if I don't like it, I'll like, <laughs> It's like, yo, you didn't grab me in the first four or five hours, that's all you got. Yeah. That's really all that I'm gonna give enough. you. Yeah, it should be enough. Yeah. So Injustice, as fun as it was, for example, our last episode, as fun as it was, uh, it's a fighting game. And that's it. You know, like it has a tail and it's not a very long tail. Mm. So that's that copy has already been given to my youngest brother, mm. you know, like to like on permanent borrow or whatever. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm having an easier time letting go of these experiences that don't serve me. Uh, and 
really, especially as I moved away from the games industry as a profession, um, despite my critical nature, has actually really just allowed me to enjoy them as a player again and not as a maker. There's something yeah. that changes, I think. In I you. think it probably does. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm both culturally more critical of it, but I'm way less technically critical of it. Yeah. When I play a game now, I'm not like searching for like the designer as much. I'm just having fun in the game. And I think yeah, we've definitely we we can probably track that also in our episodes even because like I feel like the first few episodes there was a lot more of the insider baseball yeah. and we keep using it. <laughs> Of you kind of um, talking about the, the business side it's of true, things, man, and, you it's know, true. like uh, whether you know, like yeah, just kind of that aspect of the game, the game's origin, and like whether it was successful in a kind of a, a market framework. And um, I think I'm always n not on that level, <laughs> just because sure. of not only like not having not working in games, but also just in terms of interest. Yeah, not interested. Like, you know, exactly. I, I, I'm all about the themes. I'm all about the like this then then. The narrative layer and whether you know like the game satisfies that that does that that aspect of my of my attention yeah so like maybe like i've like pushed you in that direction yeah i think so i think in so. terms of like the way you know we, we talk about games yeah and you know you've definitely like gave given me a better like mechanical um i think knowledge of games and um or a, a, at least an area where i can like i can talk about it and find um discussion points and like things to discuss Sweet. and to talk about and to focus on. Well, I promise you that when you become a famous writer, I'm going to steal all the credit. <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, we, uh, I think we've run over time actually, but that's fair. at the same time, I think y'all out there, thank you so much uh, on our 20th episode now. Uh, for anyone who has been listening this whole time, uh, thank you. Uh, and you can look forward to now seeing us more. Hopefully, gonna, yeah. Yeah, I think we can keep this up. It's, um, it's basically the same thing as if we were recording with audio. Yeah. And now I think, you just see our faces. But Yusuf has some interesting ideas that are not just recording us and our faces, so you might be seeing some interesting new things to come. Uh, yeah. So whether you're watching us on YouTube uh, or you're listening to us on the podcast, thank you so much. Um, and I guess we should also thank at Old School Brian on Twitter, at, at Old School Brian on Twitter for doing the awesome theme music. Yeah. Um, and you know, stay tuned for for more fun video game hour. And you know, I hope that we we satisfy your curiosity. Wait, what's should, to come? Yeah, what's to come? High five! High five! High five! Which you can see <laughs> if you're watching. The if video. you're watching the video. <laughs> Cheers, y'all.